So, good to see everybody. Thank you for putting up with a crazy schedule. Uh, and it's going to be on and off crazy for the next couple weeks as well. Next week, I've got Board of Oregon Ministry again. Uh, so I think it's going to be, I think it'll be Reagan again. She's got a schedule for me. And then uh, back for two weeks to start about the start about the start of the travel log, which I'll get to here in a second. And then out for spring break. Um, and then back and then back, back. Like, so it's on and off for the next couple of weeks, but still with the teacher, still the same meeting place and everything else. Okay, so we are turning from the early kind of birth narrative stuff in Luke to his ministry in Galilee. So I wrote up here uh, geography as theology because it, geography does play a key kind of subtle role, but still an important role in Luke's gospel. So everything between um, now and the end of what we're going to cover today, 950, chapter 9, verse 50, is in Galilee. And then there's a very famous verse at 951 where Jesus says, uh, where Luke says that Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem, set his face to Jerusalem. And then the whole rest of the gospel all the way until Holy Week is set on the road. So the gospel, we talked about a couple weeks ago, begins in uh, the temple, actually in Jerusalem, and it ends in the temple. It starts, uh, everything, um, I didn't put it up here, a, a fifth bullet would have been the fact that Jesus is thoroughly Jewish, like he's, he is entirely a creature of his uh, home tradition. And so I, everything in and around Jerusalem is pretty important. And this, this first section, like in John's gospel, he's coming and going a lot. And there's three Passovers that are recorded here. He does everything in Galilee. And then he's on the road for, I mean, from nine until I think 20, I think I think we get to Jerusalem in chapter 20 or something like that. So a, a good chunk of the gospel is on the road. So this portion, though, is in his home, uh, his home area. And there's a, there's a fair amount that I want to try and cover today. But there are two things in particular that I want to focus on. His first sermon, which is a pretty famous sermon. I'm sure you've heard it or read it. And then the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. So I think what we'll do is dive into those two pieces, and then as time allows, we'll cover some of the some of the other stuff, because the other things in this section are pretty, are by and large, I would say, other than these two pieces, are by and large consistent with the other Gospels. So you get some healing stories, you get some exorcism stories, you the feeding of the 5,000 is in here. Um, Stuff that we know pretty well. And as with every version of the gospel, Luke has a particular, um, has some particular details about some of those things that reflect his, his key, uh, theological emphases. But, uh, for, for the most part in this section, these are the two things to focus on. So, we, we left off with the, uh, temptation in the wilderness, right? Last time, 413. So we'll pick up with, 4.14. So then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Their synagogues? Notice that. So there are lots of clues along the way that tell us that Luke is not a Jewish person. He's, a, he's cert, almost certainly a Gentile convert. So 
every once in a while, some of that sneaks in there. Because, of course, it's his synagogue, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not, it's, yeah. Um, when he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Why? Because he is Jewish, right? This is, um, this is an obvious point, I know, but it really does, it's really pretty important. And this does fit into this notion of three epochs in our salvation history we talked about a couple weeks ago. So you got the period of Israel, which is covered in the Old Testament. This is in Luke's understanding of theology. I mean, we understand it this way too, but it's an emphasis in uh, Luke in particular. So that's your Old Testament. Um, Jesus, the era of Jesus is very brief. That's the gospel. And then the era of the church is recorded in Luke's second uh, edition or second volume, which is Acts. And everything that is according to Jewish custom, like it, it... if it's in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's going to give you a scripture from the Old Testament. Like, this is in accordance with, and he'll list it, because he's a Jewish Christian. Uh, he, that's his ethos. That's like a Methodist talking about grace. That's just the way he talks. This uh, is a little bit different. The, the things for Jesus that are connections to the old are important, because he is also then a bridge to the new. And uh, it's interesting, really, that the gospel of Luke is almost a prelude to the real story. <laughs> right? I mean, it's essential, of course. But the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts is the, is the work of us. And so Luke was already writing in this era about this era, how Jesus connected to this era. I think it's kind of fun, kind of cool. Okay. So he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Of course he is. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, as Christians, we care about all those things, of course. But in Luke's gospel, this... The emphasis really is for those on the margins. We, we saw it in chapter 1. <laughs> we saw it in chapter 2. Probably in chapter 3, yes, in John the Baptist's uh, ministry. And now his very first sermon, he's announcing what he's all about. In Matthew's gospel, his first sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. And what's interesting about that, we're going to get to the Sermon on the Plain here in a minute, but the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain come from a common source. Almost certainly. But the way they're presented is very different. When they're presented in his ministry and um, the specific details of how they're presented. And so Jesus is saying right off the bat, so the poor, the captive, the blind, so those who need healing, and the oppressed. The other thing I want to point out is uh, in verse 18 where he says, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. That is the... Uh, release, the word release translated in my uh, Bible is the uh, noun form of the verb forgive, to forgive. So, um, I, yes, I guess we're letting them out of jail. But more importantly, they're being forgiven. That's not a minor distinction, right? And this theme of forgiveness and repentance just comes up over and over again. Again, in all of Christian theology, but it's a particular point of emphasis in Luke. 
Okay, so he rolls up the scroll, verse 20. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So, just like we do today, you read the scripture, you talk about it. That's the role of the preacher now. But in a synagogue setting in the first century, it would be the, the function of every Jewish male of, of age would have the authority to do that. Now, rabbis had a particular role. We haven't really seen him as a rabbi yet, but it's clear that he's got that kind of gravitas or authority <laughs> for now, because <laughs> the story is about to take a turn. All, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a head scratcher. That's quite a first sermon. <laughs> the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I mean, yeah. All spoke well of him. And were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And then they said, wait a minute. Isn't that Joseph's boy? We know him. He used to pick his nose in the back row of the synagogue. Hey, what's he? <laughs> he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. Looks like they're walking through. Okay. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath and Sidon. The Gentiles. So he, that Elijah was in ministry with the Gentiles. There, was also, there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through, them, uh, but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Um, that would not be a great first response to your sermon, <laughs> to your very first sermon. <laughs> so there's going to be this uh, theme over and over again on the Gentile mission, because again, the era that we're living in as Luke's readers is the era of the church. So we're talking about 80 to 90 AD, so pretty late. And... Uh, this is all precursor. Jesus, the era of Jesus is a precursor to the era of the church. And of course, the early church decided almost immediately, uh, I mean, certainly in the scale of time from now to then, immediately, that the Gentiles were going to be the recipients of the salvation message, this gospel message. And what we see in Luke's account of Jesus' first sermon is that he was already talking about that. He was already talking about the importance of the good news being preached beyond the Jewish community. That's the, the reference both to Elijah and Elisha were to them interacting positively and in a healing way to non-Jews. So this, this kid uh, sits down and, sa- and, and has this message from the scroll. And he's not a kid, he's 30. But he's got this message in this scroll where he says this is now being fulfilled. And oh, by the way, it's not just for y'all. And 
that's never a real positive message. <laughs> that it's not all about us, whoever us happens to be at the time. Right. Uh, so that's true. That's true. It was their scripture. Uh, whether or not they knew it was a, probably a separate question. But yeah, it's in their Bible for sure. Yeah. So so we back up a little bit then. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the grace of your words. I mean, 22. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here in your hometown the things we have heard you do in Capernaum. If we were to go back, actually, we, he hasn't told us anything about Capernaum yet. Um, that's going to come later. It's the way Luke tells the story, kind of foreshadowing and, and um, uh, what's the flashbacks. Um, but they want him to be a preacher to them only. Like, that's this. Uh, I mean, every religion is to an extent, to some extent, um, inward focused, right? Even evangelistic religions like Christianity, uh, Islam would be in this as well, has a, has a, in theory, exterior focused agenda. And yet, it is the case that religious communities tend to <laughs> worry a fair amount about what's going on with them. And um, what seems to be the case and what's, what, what you got to parse through here is what's Luke's setting and what's Jesus' setting, right? I mean, because we, this isn't history necessarily. This is, this is Luke's interpretation and presentation of what Jesus had done. And this is unique to Luke. So this is not one of those cases where, I mean, he obviously feeds the 5,000 because they all record it. They have some different details, but it happened in all of their Gospels. This one's a little bit different because it's got, it, he's presenting... Um, what I think scholars would argue is the concerns of his community uh, interpreted through the ministry of Jesus. So uh, did this happen exactly this way? Good question. Is Luke's assumption that uh, the, that his own people rejected him? Yes, that's his assumption because that actually happened. And so this is uh, an example of how that might've occurred. But it's a logical question. Like, why would, why would that bother you? Because it's right there in our scriptures. But it clearly did. There's something going on there that's... I, I, it depends on who's reading it, but I read it as kind of a, um, like a mystical moment. You know? I mean, the guy who can walk on water yeah. can certainly get away from these yahoos who yeah, right. are mad at him for caring about other people. <laughs> right? So he sets a tone right at the beginning that is entirely reflective of what his mother had said in the Magnificat before he was born. This notion of overturning, this notion of ministry to those on the margins, um, the notion of not just caring about the people who already think they're in religiously. Uh, that's going to be a thing that, that continues throughout. And so then right immediately following this, so he escapes from the crowd, and we have a series of um, vignettes that give us I think there's six of them total, these kind of quick-paced stories that tell us about how popular he is in Galilee for obvious reasons, because he's healing people, he's casting out demons, uh, clearly his teaching, clearly he's charismatic, but he's, for the people who are not the religious insiders, 
like they're not the people who will become his opponents, the Pharisees and the scribes, like to the commoners, I'm going to put it that way. Um, he's immensely popular because he's in ministry with them. He's, and, and it's very much focused, as we've said multiple times, to those on the margins. So the man with the unclean spirit is the first section. There are some healings that he does at Capernaum that, we'll, again, we'll come back to these as time allows. Um, he calls the first of his disciples in chapter 5. That's uh, the order of this varies a little bit in, like, in, it, this is later than Mark has this happening, but that's not really a huge deal. Um, he's got the cleansing of the leper, which is a common gospel story, the healing of the paralytic, uh, and the whole question of what you're able to do on the Sabbath follows that. Uh, and the, then he goes in the early in six, he chooses the 12 apostles. So he's called some initial disciples. And now in chapter six, we get the full list of the 12. And what's interesting in Luke is that he calls them the apostles. We don't really think of them as apostles, right? Don't you? I mean, don't we think of them as the disciples? I always, I always did. And honestly, um, my first, in my New Testament class, I don't know, we were like a month in and somebody made a joke about the distinction between a disciple and apostle. I didn't get it. I didn't get it then. I still don't get it. Like I don't, the, 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 Names of these of this group of people, I always think of changing after the resurrection, right? So they're disciples, they're following Jesus while he's here, and then once he's resurrected and ascends and they get the Holy Spirit, then they're apostles. Apostles literally means sent out. And I think, in like in general Christian parlance, that's how you would refer to them. So if Peter was a disciple during Jesus' lifetime, he becomes an apostle afterwards, um, obviously the Apostle Paul, anyone who's sent and called after Jesus' lifetime is an apostle. But we're talking about this third era of the church's life uh, in the time of the church, as a, I mean, in our salvation history. So one is Israel, two is Jesus, three is, is the church, and apostles belong to this third era. But this author <laughs> writes that story in Acts, and he's already foreshadowing what these guys will become. Because he's very interested in the Gentile mission, because why? He's writing to a Gentile audience. So the way Luke is going to tell the story, the, well, the way, or to think of it this way, the way Luke is reinterpreting the tradition that he's received is that clearly the, the group of 12 who were in this era of our salvation history um, Jesus already knew what he was going to do with them after the resurrection, and that is to send them out to the ends of the earth. So after that, then, comes the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, well, that's where we're going to pick up the stories. In chapter 6, verse 17. So right in the title, you see one of the theological distinctions between Matthew and Luke. How many people here have been to the Church of the Beatitudes in Israel? So it's on this gorgeous hill. I don't know how, what it looked like in the year 30 AD, but right now it's gorgeous. It overlooks the Sea of Galilee. But it's removed. So the vision of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus goes up to the mountain with the Twelve, and uh, he's not down among the folk. It's the opposite in Luke, he goes down and preaches among the people. 
And that's not just a geographical distinction. I mean, that, that does reflect the, kind of the different role that this sermon plays for Luke uh, than it does for Matthew. Um, this is a sermon that is to uh, the apostles, so the twelve, the disciples, Think of them as the JV. They weren't in the top 12. They weren't in the starting lineup, but they were still following him. Um, and the people. And Matthew's version of this account is four times as long. His, his account of this sermon is four times as long as Luke's. So uh, scholars believe, we talked about this in week one, there's a certain amount of material that both, shoot, There's a certain amount of material that is shared by Luke and Matthew. And scholars call that Q, quella, for the, the German for source. They have their own material. Each of them has their own material. Each of them also have Mark in front of them that they interpret and change some of the details. And then they've got this, this uh, hypothetical document that nobody's ever found called Q. It's so, it's so similar that scholars assume that they share it. But... Because Matthew spends so much more time on this particular sermon, scholars argue that Luke has the is, is, a, is following Q more closely. But he still twists it, uh, not twists it, but he still adds his own interpretation in really specific ways. So when you, have y'all read the Sermon on Mount recently? It's worth reading frequently. <laughs> it's the most challenging thing Jesus ever taught, in my opinion. That starts in Matthew 5. That's the whole thing about turn the other cheek, love your enemies, go the second mile, all that. Um, so this is uh, the quarter-length version of that, but skewed in a particular way. So he came. Let's, let's just read it. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Let's be honest. They came to be healed of their diseases. They figured they had to listen to him. They were going to let him heal him. <laughs> and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples. Like, that's a subtle detail. But a Sermon on the Mount, you're preaching down. Sermon on the Plain, he looks up. Which is just, uh, I mean, I'm sure that's not a literal detail so much as a maybe poetic detail. Blessed are you who are poor. And if you know the Beatitudes, you know the Beatitudes say, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor, the hypothetical poor in spirit. But he's looking them in the eye, sitting among them. And saying, blessed are you who are poor. And his very first sermon has made clear that that's, this is his primary ministry. To preach good news to the poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. I actually just want to read these side by side. Because it's, it's quite striking. Based on the same, what most likely, based on the same source who had recorded this essential version of Jesus teachings. Luke says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Matthew in in chapter 5, verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Like it's, it's a much more spiritualized version of this of these teachings, these beatitudes, and it's it's in the third person instead of in the second person, and the impact of that's very different, right? Because, um, I mean, just grammatically, linguistically, it's to a much more narrow audience. Now. Um, we're all, by world standards, pretty wealthy, right? I mean, just by global standards. So I don't think that should offend us. Um, that he's not, I mean, of course, Jesus has teachings for all of us, for all people. The gospel message is for everybody. But in Luke's account of this essential teaching, it's a, it functions in a different way than it does in Matthew. And he has told us that this is coming. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Not to the hypothetical poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. So this one says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Which is beautiful. I love the Beatitudes. I love the Beatitudes. But I tell you what, if if you're weeping now, this is better. (laughs) I think. It's more comforting. It's not just that things are going to be okay. It's that you're going to laugh. Hmm. How many people were at that funeral yesterday? That's, um, that's a powerful message to a mom, to a parent burying their child. Both fantastic now, but you, like the emotional weight is very different. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on the, account, on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. So in Matthew, there are nine blessings, beatitudes, and zero woes. <laughs> in Luke, there are four of each, and they're set in parallel. There's four blessings, and there are four woes and they're all directed to you in in the sermon on the mount uh the ninth beatitude is is directed to you and that's the only one all the others are third person so what do the woes say but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation woe to you who are full now for you will be hungry woe to you who are laughing now for you will mourn and weep Woe to you who, when all speak well of you, (laughs) for that is what their ancestors did to false prophets. Their ancestors. That sounds a little bit more like Luke's interpretation of Jesus' words. Because, (laughs) I mean, he's a Jew, right? He would be saying our ancestors. Okay. Through 26. So, um... That part's tougher. I've never heard a sermon on that part, by the way. I've never. Um, 
Well, you know, some things are better for Bible study. <laughs> there's not, well, but, well, honestly, there is a, like, there's a homiletical thing there. Like, if, you, if you're going to say, if you're going to talk about something that's really difficult or um, confrontive, as some of the gospel, some of the Bible certainly is, then uh, the, you, you, it's very hard to do that in a way that's, that people can hear if you get people on the defensive immediately. And that, you know, when, I, when I read this, and I love Jesus, I mean, I'm like, whoa, woe to me who is rich. What are you talking about, man? Um, I'm doing the Lord's work. Um, so there are some things that are better for conversation than preaching. But this, this shouldn't really surprise us. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Um, his mama had said uh, he has shown... With strength with his arms, scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts, brought down the powerful from the thrones, lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry with good things, and sent the rich away empty. I mean, he, he seems to come by this naturally. <laughs> That's the Magnificat. So that when this, in this, and here's the crazy thing, y'all. This is the most essential teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is the, is the um, like that is the core of our understanding of his teaching ministry. There's a lot of other aspects of his ministry, but the Sermon on the Mount is like, and John, John Wesley wrote more on the Sermon on the Mount than anything else. Not more on the Sermon on the Plain than anything else, interestingly. And so it's the same material, probably closer to the original, at least in terms of format, even if some of the details were uh, maybe changed, you know, in some way to reflect the emphases of Matthew and Luke. But he sure does it in an effective way to get his point across about the focus of Christ's ministry. So then he goes on. Verse 27. But I say to you, yes, but I say to you that, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away from, who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Um, that's a hard one. Give to everyone who begs from you. I mean, what if they're just going to use it to buy alcohol or drugs? Like, dark I really believe that sign? Right, I mean, right. So, um, but apparently, yeah. Are we not making the judgment? Right. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's exactly the point. Soon to follow. Yeah. Do not judge. Yeah. But I'm really good at judging. (laughs) I got a really good judger, Jesus. Come on, man. Yeah. It's very hard for me not to be cynical about that. Not not about your your grandchildren's, uh, you know, approach, but just the idea of giving people just because they ask for something. <laughs> but, I mean, bless, he's saying it right here. Give to everyone who begs from you. When I was in, um, so I was a Russian major, and we were uh, studying, a group of us were studying in the Soviet Union in June of 91. And so this was uh, right, right. It, I, I was there when they uh, voted to elect Boris Yeltsin, first, first election since the Russian Revolution. Uh, and when they voted to change the name from Leningrad to St. Petersburg, and it was this really weird time, uh, kind of exhilarating to be studying it, but the poverty was endemic in uh, the Soviet Union at that time. And everywhere, 
there were uh, beggars um, who in Russian were just called gypsies, which I think is probably not, I don't think that's a PC term. Um, but, but I mean, and I, I'm not, really, I'm not being flippant about that. So they, the Roma people, but in, but in, um, in Russian, they were just called gypsies. And they, like, they would send these kids, y'all, y'all have probably seen this, like these just wretched little, it's like from Charles Dickens or something, uh, to come and, and beg. And we were with a Russian Orthodox, um, guide who was not, he, he was a second generation American. I mean, uh, second generation American. His parents had been Russian. Uh, he was an older guy, fled the revolution, all that. And everywhere we went, he was handing out money everywhere we went. And I was 21 at the time. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? They are never going to leave you alone. Like, and so he said, well, in my tradition, he was Russian Orthodox. Um, you give alms to the poor and it doesn't really matter what they do with it. Like, it's not my business. It's not my business. Whether they are, whether they're conning me, that's between them and God. Does it not my business, whether or not they're they actually are middle-class and just, you know, making, making out with the tourists. And I thought, oh, okay, that challenged me. <laughs> that was like an embodiment of this. Give to everyone who begs from you. And yeah, I think he probably quoted the sermon on the plane. Stinker knew his Bible. So, uh, <laughs> gosh, I'll tell you this story. So we were, so Arapahoe United Methodist Church is down on, it's on a bus stop. And so we had a lot more traffic there, I think, than we even do here, as far as people coming in and asking for things. And um, I mean, just being real confessional, it's hard not to get hardened about that, right? I mean, it's just only so many times you can take the same person to go fill their car up with gas. And... Um, <laughs> This person came in, and I was just not, it was not a great day. I was, you know, doing a million things and didn't want to, you know, I was just not in the mood to be, to do, follow Jesus on this one. <laughs> and uh, so I, I sent this woman away, and then I felt bad about it. And Whitney's like, this is before we had kids, Whitney said, what? Because I was a little emotional about it. And she's like, what? what's going on? I said, well... I think I might have just turned Jesus away. Actually. <laughs> so I, you know, I, uh, <laughs> you ever read Lonesome Dove? So in the foreword to Lonesome Dove, the introduction says uh, that Gus would have a phrase that uh, "living ain't for sissies," and I, I think the faith is like that, right? I mean, this is not um, it, it's not an easy thing. And when you're reading Luke's gospel, there's all these great stories. Gosh, I, my go-tos in Luke are like the, um, the of course, the Christmas stuff and the Good Samaritan prodigal. Like I, I, I want to identify with the prodigal. Like, forgive me a hundred times, but then if you got to tell me, I've got to show that same kind of care and concern and love for everybody else. Well, then, now you're getting to meddling, Jesus. There are a couple, of, we're doing some, um, when we get to stewardship, I'm going to, there's some really good ones on stewardship in Luke too. Those are easier to preach than than this part. But okay, I think Eldon, to your point with the quadrilateral. I mean, there's there is um, uh, we have to let the Bible challenge us, and then we've got to figure out what 
how we're going to engage with it. And so what's practical and what's reasonable and what's, you know, our setting's different than his setting. And there's all kinds of resources available to people that weren't available then. I mean, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of ways that we have to engage with this text, with our reason, with our tradition, with our own experience. Um, but there's no question that the Sunday school Jesus that we all love from Luke, Good Samaritan, Prodigal Son, Christmas Story, Forgiving the Thief on the Cross, Zacchaeus, that wee little man, all that, comes with this edgier side that sometimes we read different gospel versions of, <laughs> intentionally or not, um, which I think we just have to pay attention to. Sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Plain are both challenging, but for me, for different reasons. Even though they're from the same source, which I think is kind of awesome. All right. Uh, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Terrible banking policy. Terrible banking policy right there. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Hmm. That's a good verse, actually, there. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I mean, that's, old. I mean, that's Lord's Prayer stuff. We, we know that. But this, this idea of forgiveness and repentance, we tend to think of it in terms of our own spiritual journey, right? I repent of my sin. Like it's a forgiveness and repentance go hand in hand. I don't earn forgiveness by repenting, but when I'm forgiven, I'm called to repent, which means to turn. But it's not just about me. (laughs) It's about my relationships with everybody else too. And then David, to your point, do not judge. And you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. It's pretty consistent, too. And he says it a bunch of different ways. Um, But he really means it. (laughs) Love your neighbor as yourself. Love yourself. And then love your neighbor as yourself. He also told him a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. It's way easier for me to see what's wrong with you than for me to acknowledge what's wrong with me. And, like, I mean, that's just good psychological self-awareness stuff. Like, that's, he's, he's way ahead of therapists on this. Um, you worry about your side of the street, but the, let your friend worry about their side of the street. I mean, that's just good life lessons, right? Our, our mothers probably taught us that, too. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor, again, does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. 
Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. I love that. This was John Wesley 101. Uh, well, I guess Wesley speaking about Jesus 101. Um, this, this relationship between... Like, so in the Protestant Reformation, there was a lot of argument about faith and works. How are they related? Do we do good works in order to earn forgiveness, in order to earn grace? Um, James, the letter of James has a whole thing about faith without works is dead. Luther, Martin Luther hated the letter of James, thought it shouldn't be in the canon. Wesley loved it, thought it should be first in the canon. Um, Because for Wesley... It's not that we, uh, once we are, write these concepts down. So we were talking earlier or before class started about judgment. So when we're justified, that's when we put our faith in Christ and that's when we're forgiven. So I, I accept, I mean, to use kind of the classic evangelical language, I accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. I put my faith in him. I'm forgiven of my sin. We all kind of know that that's, uh, that's the kind of foundation of the way things start. But this, that moment of justification, when we're judged and forgiven, is not the point of the story for John Wesley. The point of the story for John Wesley is the next phase, which is sanctification, which is when the, the Holy Spirit works within us in order to um, grow, grow in our love for God and our neighbor. That's what so we, we say we're going on to perfection, which, which means that does not mean that we're going to a state where we don't make any mistakes, but Christian love, perfection in Christian love for Wesley meant perfect love for God. A neighbor, he thought you could achieve it in glimpses. I think the closest we get is with our kids, personally, sometimes with our spouses, but kids are uh, easier (laughs) Um, some days uh, on that. And for Wesley, it's not that you, it's not that good works were demanded of God as a condition of your salvation. It's that good works are the inevitable outcome of your faith in God. And if you don't have good works in your life, you probably should check your faith. That's what Wesley would say. Your heart probably is not as all in as you think it is. And it, and, he, and he argues that based on this kind of the, this passage and the art and the passage uh, passage in the Sermon on the Mount that are similar, that you know, a good tree you know by its fruit, and a bad tree doesn't bear fruit. And, a, um, uh, yeah, so yeah. and if you do have fruit, then obviously the tree is good. So the relationship between faith and works is kind of, a, it's kind of an obvious one for Wesley, that if your faith in Christ is good and, and true and authentic, then you are, of course, of course, going to have good works as the fruit of your faith. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to do everything that the Sermon on the Plain says all the time. Of course not. But it does mean that your life looks differently, looks different than it would if you didn't have faith in Christ. Super practical theology. All right, and then this section ends at the last few verses of 6. For why do you call me Lord, Lord? 
and do not do what I tell you. I will show you what someone who is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood arose, the river burst against the house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. The rain came down and the floods came up. There's a kid's song about that. When you read that in Matthew, by the way, it's a little different. That's probably not exactly the way you remember hearing it. That's because you had to build differently in Palestine than you had to in Turkey or wherever, modern-day Turkey. Like it's a, it's a reflection of Palestinian architecture versus non-Palestinian architecture. So that's really a, it's really pretty brief, which is interesting. It's interesting that the most important teaching of Jesus is a quarter of the length in the gospel that, who, uh, whose author writes a quarter of the New Testament. I mean, Luke is not, he doesn't, he's not sparing with his words, right? He writes a lot. He, he's written a ton, two of the most important books in the New Testament. But this most essential teaching of Jesus, where Matthew takes it and expands upon it and offers interpretations throughout, because Jesus like had the commandment and then he'll explain it some, uh, is reflective of the, the different emphases that Luke and, and Matthew have with regard to Jesus. So Luke, for Jesus, um, is not first and foremost a teacher. I mean, sorry, Jesus in Luke is not first and foremost a teacher. Jesus in Matthew has five extended discourses. He's, he's, he's actually, he does a lot of teaching. So the balance is, is different in the way Matt, uh, Luke and Matthew present the gospel, which I think also think is interesting. And I'll take even more, one step further. Reading the gospels is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> because if you, like, listen, everybody here has been in the church plenty. We all have a pretty clear idea in our head of who Jesus is and, and what he's all about. And um, when you really dig down on the details of, of these Gospels, any of the four, you realize that what, like the, the thumbnail sketch that we have of Jesus is really just a very small part of who he is. We're all clear, look, my faith in Christ puts me in a right relationship with God. That's the headline. That's the most important thing, I believe. Um, lots of details can take care of themselves after that. But as we grow in our faith, as we you know, make this journey of sanctification, as we go on to perfection and really try to get a sense of who he was, what he was all about, what was important and not important, um, you know, we, we realize that, I mean, gosh, if he was countercultural in his day, which he certainly was, both for his own religious community and the world at large, his world at large, he is massively countercultural <laughs> for our modern consumeristic, individualistic uh, culture as 21st century Americans. So the question then becomes, how do we, how do we um, make sense of his teachings in our own day? How, this, this quadrilateral question that we come, uh, come back to a couple times, how, where does our tradition come in to that whole conversation uh, with reason and experience? Like how do we live out our discipleship in a very different setting? And I do think it's okay uh, if we are, if we just let ourselves um, 
be challenged. I mean, you know, he's, he's, uh, he was nothing if not challenging to everyone around him all the time. Ask any of the 12 who seemed like they were constantly in trouble with him. Um, I'm guessing we probably would be too, <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, that's, that's why we're all going on to perfection and not there. So, and I, so, uh, for the podcast folks, the question was about like, we, we tend to gravitate as servants because I think we all believe we, we are to be servants in some way. So we, and we serve the church. We serve Christ through the church in a lot of ways. We serve Christ in the world in a lot of ways. And, um, there is inevitably, I would say inevitably, or maybe mostly inevitably, some kind of a, like a spiritual or emotional payoff for us, right? We do the things that we're good at and we like to do and we feel like we can contribute. I'm, by all means, I, the last thing I would ever say is anything disparaging about that. But the question is, that was asked was, uh, <laughs> the stuff he's asking us to do in the Sermon on the Plain don't necessarily come with that same kind of emotional and spiritual uh, warm and fuzzy. And yeah, yeah, that's true. And so then what do we do with that? You know, I think every good, every... Um, and you're, man, you're just... You're, you're pushing my button here, Lorraine, because this is like the whole thing about turning the other cheek. That, gosh, that is just not the way I'm wired. Um, I'm not naturally a peacemaker in that way, you know, and uh, and clearly that's a, a priority for him. And this is the Lord, after all, who went to the cross <laughs> and had other options <laughs> and still went to the cross. Um, let me, so let me, I think there's some, another place in here that we haven't had a chance to get to yet that may at least help us with this somewhat. Let me see. Um, I have so many notes on this. Let's go to 9.23. So towards the end of this section in Galilee, the ninth chapter uh, is the beginning of the turn. So the ninth chapter starts starts to prepare us for this journey to the cross. And it's a long journey. In Luke, as I've said, the walk to Jerusalem is long. But in 923, this is in that section, it's on the nature of discipleship. Uh, Then he said to them all, if anyone had become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So this bit about um, uh, ashamed of me, those who are ashamed of my words, me and my words, <laughs> that doesn't mean if you don't repost this on Facebook, you're ashamed of Jesus. Like you've seen those. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. Um, but there's a word in here that's distinct from some uh, from uh, where it appears elsewhere in the Gospels. He says, "Let them take up their cross daily." So uh, it's not that martyrdom is the goal or the pinnacle or the standard or the expectation of discipleship. That's what he's going to do. He's going to go to the cross one day, Good Friday. But to take up our cross daily means that we live sacrificially. 
And as I think through um, how to how to work uh, with these very challenging texts of Jesus, like when we when we all get to heaven someday, and there's Hebrews has a great uh, line: "There is one to whom we must render an account." I don't think that Jesus is going to fuss. The house on the corner is a great example. Um, he's not going to say, well, you only did house on the corner because you liked it. I think what he's going to say, because he's Jesus, is, man, you sure did change a bunch of lives with that work in house on the corner. You changed a family's life and their future generation's lives. That's good work. Um, that's how I interpret it. In light of the entire canon. You know what I mean? Because it's not like... The, the worst kind of biblical interpretation is when you take one verse or one passage and assume that that one thing is the thing. And we do this uh, with, on, on subjects, some particular subjects sometimes. Um, we, I mean, we all have our kind of go-to, our most comfortable scriptures, the one that come uh, quickly to mind that really kind of define how we show up in the world. But we have to read them in light of the, of the, to, of the totality, you know? And... Um, I, the, while there are plenty of teachings of Jesus that really push me out of my comfort zone, um, there's also a whole bunch that tell me that if my faith's in him, it is going to be okay. And if even the thief on the cross gets forgiven, <laughs> then, you know, if I turned away that woman that one time at Arapahoe... <laughs> Like, I don't think that's going, I don't think, I don't think we're going to sit down and go through all that when I get to heaven. You know what I mean? Um, well, it wouldn't be heaven if you did. It wouldn't be heaven if you did, right. That's where the Catholics got that purgatory thing that's going. <laughs> but that's right. That's what we're all hoping for. I mean, that's right. I, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just think these, these scriptures and the, the wrestling with the stuff from Jesus' lips that really challenge us is so worthwhile. Because most people don't get that far. <laughs> um, but it's obvious we're all taking it pretty seriously. And I have a feeling I'm going to get all the way to heaven and never have turned the other cheek. If somebody slaps me, it's on. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So anyway, all right, gosh, we, we only read a couple of passages, but we really did get a sense of what, where, what he's getting at. I just want to give you one last fun piece of trivia. In, um, we didn't get there, but in Luke... The Sea of Galilee is a lake because for a non-Palestinian, for somebody who lived in the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean was the sea. And that little body of water, <laughs> that's not a sea. The Sea of Galilee is not a sea. But if that's your whole frame of reference, then it's a sea. So if you're cheering for the Rams, go Rams. If you're cheering for the Bengals, who day? Is that what you all say? Okay, excellent. I see that. I uh, hope you have a great evening. Um, Go in peace. Please do keep the Blakes in your prayers. The Blakes are the family who had, to, had that funeral yesterday morning. Tough, tough funeral. Um, and we will, your favorite teacher will be back next week, Reagan. <laughs> and, then I'll, and then I'll be back in two. So thanks, you guys. God bless you.